open our Bibles tonight to Genesis chapter 4. And tonight we'd like to look at chapters 4 and 5 and two lineages that the Lord lays before us that we have a lot to learn from. The book of Genesis covers about 2,500 years of, of history. 1,500 of those years are in these two chapters. So we're going to sweep through lots of generations, so put on your seatbelt. So far we have seen in chapter 1 the beginning of the universe. We have seen in chapter 2 the beginning of the human race. And in chapter 3, the beginning or the root of sin. In chapter 1, it was God looked at all uh, he had made and he said it was very good. But after the fall last week, chapter 4 and 5 will have a new kind of um, repeated phrase. And the repeated phrase will be, and he died. And he died. Last week, Adam and Eve were cast from the garden. And as they were put outside the garden, so were we as we find ourselves in them born of sin that was pervasive, it was invasive, Paul will write years from now uh, in the New Testament that we need a second Ab Adam to come and fix what the first Adam destroyed. And so we find ourselves tonight at the beginning of life outside the garden, if you will, as God gives to us the progression of sin and its effect folding out before our very eyes. Verse 1 says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have received a man from the Lord. The chapter opens happily enough. So far, so good. Eve is pregnant with her first child. Nobody had ever been pregnant before. No reference point here. I don't know how Adam felt about all that. Honey, you're putting on a few pounds, aren't you? And Why do you need pickles at 3 in the morning? But in any event, <clears throat> it was all new to them. The word new here is a biblical Hebrew idiom for having sexual relationships. You will find the same thing in Matthew chapter 1, where we read Joseph did not know his wife, Mary, until Jesus was born. Notice here that Eve became pregnant, and she is called Adam's wife. It is the first time the word wife is used in the Bible. A biblical hermeneutics, a, a way of interpreting Bible verses, would say that the first time anything is used is the time that you want to look for the definition because it will be the main one that is used uh, after that first usage. So uh, God had married them in a garden wedding. Eve became pregnant and she bore Cain. The word Cain means to acquire or to get. Typically in ancient cultures, the husband named the children. You'll find that to be true. Um, remember John the Baptist's uh, birth and they're waiting for the dad to tell him what the name should be. Here Eve names the first human born. And I think she does so to communicate to us that she believed God's promise back in chapter 3, verse 15, that the Lord would send a deliverer. And I truly believe she thought, this is the one. Like, the Lord's going to fix this right away. So he's the one that I've acquired from the Lord. A possession I've acquired, a gift from the Lord. I think it shows her saving faith in God's promises, and certainly that he will undo what the serpent and I and us have done. There was never a higher hope, I think, held by parents for their child than for Cain. But you know the story. She was wrong. The Messiah would save and, and be from her seed, but it would not be Cain. In fact, it wouldn't take very long before she realized that in her arms she held the human race's first murderer. Sin has taken over. The first born into a sin-cursed world would manifest itself through a very selfish temper with an inborn kind of ability to deceive and lie, driven by self-will and pride. <clears throat> his anger and his absolute unwillingness to submit to the Lord. No doubt he was spoiled, I would suspect. All they had to do was raise Cain, and they did. They were able. It's an old joke, but anyway. <clears throat> Verse 2 tells us, Then she bore again, this time, his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Cain was a tiller of the ground. The word Abel means to breathe or to have breath or something that would ascend from below to above. It sounds like 
Eve thought she had her savior, and so this boy, she was just praying, would ascend to the Lord. This was my second child. I don't know if, if they favored Cain because they really believed who he might be. That's possible. But nothing more has told us about these two boys born to Adam and Eve, um, except that they grew up with entirely different career paths. Abel was a shepherd. Cain was a farmer tending the soil. Two boys born into sin, quickly learned how hard life was after the fall. So Cain fought the weeds. Abel fended off the wolves. They both seemed to prosper, one on the sweat of his brow, the other with diligence protecting the flock as a shepherd and having a heart for the, for the sheep. And it seems like all, uh, both the boys were taught well. We only have to go on what the Lord gives us. They, they knew there was a God. <clears throat> they knew about sin, being an offensive to the Lord. They knew that God demanded that they come to him at some point and that he required an offering for their sin. They couldn't just barge into his presence. They were aware of all of those things. Either their parents taught them directly, maybe talked to them about the animal skins that they were wearing when they first came out of the garden, or that death was required and God had made access to them very clear. We read in verse 3 these very arbitrary, not arbitrary, but very kind of nebulous terms. In the, uh, in the process of time, <clears throat> it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, and also brought of the, and Abel brought of the firstborn of the flock and of the fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The words in the process of time literally translate at the end of the day. And it is one of those kind of, we use that term, right? At the end of the day and then whatever it might be. It does leave us some gaps. We have some questions. And we are only able to extrapolate the conclusions based on what portions of scriptures we are given here. And then there are some other places to support, I think, the conclusions. So what are we to make of this? <clears throat> we don't know how many years went by. We do know that as time rolled by, that these boys, both of them were very much aware of God's will that they come, of their responsibility to come and bring an offering, that they had to come as the Lord desired, that he had taught them either through their parents or directly, we don't know. But in the process of time, they were aware of what God required. We read in verse 4 and 5 here that God had a respect for Abel's offerings, but not for Cain. The word would imply that God received the offering of Cain, uh, of Abel, but not of Cain. And we're not told at all how he made that clear. You know, if we just use Bible standards, at least whenever a first offering was brought, God would send fire from heaven to consume it. I don't know if that happened, but it became clear to both the boys of, of the Lord's approval or, or the lack thereof. We, we, we remember the fire with Elijah, with the prophets of Baal and all, that God approved Elijah's offering. In any respect, the offering of Abel's was received while the offering of his brother Cain's was not. Now, some of you reading this might think that's not fair, especially if you're reading through the Bible for the first time. Cain brought the best that he had, and I suspect if you put yourself in the shoes of, of these folks, because after all, this is narrative, right? Narrative is you stand with the folks in the, in the narrative and you look around and ask your questions and ask the Lord to show you what to learn. If you stand with Abel and Cain at this time, I would think that, that Cain's offering was much more beautiful. Fruit baskets arranged with colors and greens. And then there's Abel with a platter of dripping blood in the carcass of a dead animal. Not exactly the same. I'm sure that Cain brought what he brought with excitement. It was decorated. It was presentable. I don't know if Abel could have been near so excited. It wasn't so great to slit an animal's throat and watch the blood drain from its life. It might have very much made him sad, not happy. And yet the comparison is important because Cain's sacrifice was devoid of any blood in our fellowship with God since the fall depended on it, and since the fall forward will always depend upon it. It was a life that had to be given. The wages of sin is death. It started in the garden with the killing of those animals, probably lambs, to, to clothe the nakedness of Adam and Eve, and it has been the same ever since. 
the, the answer for any dilemma that you might have about God respecting the one offering and not the other is found in the New Testament. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, and by it he received, uh, re re obtained witness. He was righteous. God testified of his gift, and he, being dead, still speaks, or his example still ministers to us. Now look, Cain was no atheist. Cain was a conscientious, religious, hardworking, disciplined man who could even have been more demonstrative than Abel in bringing his sacrifice to the Lord. Yet Abel came and brought a lamb from the flock, a firstborn lamb, what he had been given first. Abel would have to build a crude altar. He would, probably out of stone, he would have to cut kindling wood. He would have to strike a fire. He would have to set the, the logs ablaze. He would have to take the lamb that he loved and protected, slit its throat, watch it die with sadness, cutting it in pieces, laying it upon the altar before the Lord. It was a dreadful, bloody approach. It was designed by the Lord for just that purpose, so that we would say the horrors of sin and the great sacrifice that God would make for us to save us. I'm sure that he, he was unimaginably, unimaginably moved by it. I am also sure that Cain stood on the sides and watched with disgust, that he thought somehow God would like the best from his fields, fragrant flowers, beautiful fruit, corn, and wheat stalks, his tan face, smugly looking at his own delightful arrangement. <clears throat> All of this before the flood, where only vegetables were eating. They were vegetarians until after the flood. So he was in high demand. He would have been well received. He provided food for the people. And now he stands before the Lord. Yet, Hebrews 11.4 tells us that Abel brought an offering of faith, and without it it is impossible to please God, that we have to come to him by faith. And it makes it very obvious that both boys were being led uh, in a different manner, if you will. One of them was approaching the Lord in a way that he wanted, the other in a way that God had required. Not much different than people today. You tell them you must be born again without Jesus, you're not going to make it. But you go talk to the religious people in the world, they'll tell you a hundred ways they're going to make it and that you're wrong. And there are two ways. There's a way of Cain and then there's a way of Abel. In the end, Abel believed God and obeyed him while Cain did not. Abel took the place of a sinner. Like his parents, he relied upon God's direction to approach him. He turned to bloodshed, which God would require. In so doing, he looked outside himself for help. A big deal. He didn't look to himself. He looked outside of himself. Just like we need to go to Calvary. He believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. But that's now how Cain operated. He came with self-righteousness, as we will read. He came uh, refusing a salvation based upon blood. He found that offensive. He came his own ways. He came in a way that seemed right to him. He categorically rejected in the process of time what God had required. So in so doing, you get these two paths that men follow to try to get to God. There's a way of the cross, and then there's a way of Cain. The one leads straight to heaven, the other directly to hell. One is based solely upon faith, the other based solely upon works, and Cain should teach us that we can do many things for God that costs us much, but will in the end be rejected by him. They're really not <laughs> demanded by God to begin with. The story of Cain here early on is the first story in the Bible of a false religious system. And if you look at Cain and you look at his responses, he bears all of the marks, identifying marks, of every uh, false religion to this day. True religion or true salvation always revolves around three things. The word of God, the person and work of Jesus, and the witness of the Holy Spirit. 
Cain's religion is also three points. It is human in its scheme. It is human in its sacrifice. And it is a self-righteous act that rewards the doer for his doing. Think about it and look, look at the picture here. Cain's religion does not rely upon divine revelation at all. He approaches it from the standpoint of human reasoning. This is what I think God should like. I brought him the best that I have. Look how beautifully I presented it. But it wasn't by faith. The basic premise is that salvation in his mind has to be earned and merited and purchased at the cost of one's own worldly efforts. So Cain brought the fruit over which he had toiled long and hard. He brought his best. And the first promise of every religion is that. I've given him my best. What more does he want? What more can he ask for? Jude will say in chapter 1, well, there's only one chapter of Jude. In verse 11 of Jude, there is a way of Cain that is marked with apostasy. It literally uses the phrase, a way of Cain. The word of God declares you are saved by faith, not of yourself, the work of God, lest any man, or gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are told uh, the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse us from all sin, and that God looks upon that blood that was shed. There's the law, it says, all, all things are by the law purged with blood, Paul wrote, without the shedding of blood. There's no forgiveness, no remission of your sin. Here's where the conflict starts, here. After man falls into sin, God makes a promise. He begins to communicate his will. And the way of Cain decides he's got a better idea. Instead of focusing on the work of Jesus, most every false religious focuses on the labors of the adherence to that religious plan. Cain's offerings were costly. And they, he gave up profit, if you will, as a result of that. It may have required far more labor than Abel's. Abel brought a firstborn lamb. <laughs> I don't know how much of work that might have been, but I know for Cain, he would have had to, to work the fields for many weeks and months. He brought God the best he had, the biggest, the, 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 the ripest, the most colorful, if you will. But there was no blood, not a drop. This was all my liver, and hey, look what I've done for you. He was willing to bring his best, but only upon his terms. A lot of people like that who aren't saved. His plan of approach made sense to him. He couldn't for the life of him see that God wouldn't accept it. But, but here's the deal. He, he comes with an offering. He doesn't record, or there's no recording of it. A guilt feeling of sin, no repentance, if you will, no apprehension or fear before the Lord, no confession, no remorse, no repentance at all. In fact, we will see in a moment in verse 7, uh, that the Lord will address that. He, didn't, he doesn't agree with God that he required blood. It, it, he refused it, just as people today refuse Christ. You say, look, you just need to have Jesus in your life. Oh, that's all it takes, huh? Yeah, that's all it takes, huh? But people refuse. Well, I, I go to church every week. I don't lie. I'm pretty nice to my neighbors. I only drink on the weekends. I only get drunk on New Year's Eve, you know? I got a whole list of stuff God's going to be happy with. Today, millions of people run along the path of Cain, perpetuating his heir with pious thoughts of sacrifice and good works, religious rituals, worldly actions that refuse the finished work of Jesus. They, boys, were in no position to dictate to God how to come to him and how to worship him. Instead, he determines the terms of relationship with you. On the other hand, look at Cain. His offering to the Lord was superior in three different ways. It was, it was superior in the kind of offering that he brought, a blood sacrifice. It was superior in the quality of the offering. He brought a firstborn and the fat. Literally, he brought the best that God had provided for him. By the way, there's no mention of the quality of Cain's offerings, at least not in our scriptures. He brought the best and the first. It was like nothing is too good for God. It, it becomes the basis years down the road for our tithing and our giving that God would take the first part of what he gives us so that we would acknowledge that everything we have belongs to him. 
It's just a, it's an action of acknowledgement of God's provision. It's certainly not making God, you know, financially capable. He, he doesn't need that. But we need to learn that we, everything we have comes from him. We should give him our best. We have a thrift store. Sometimes people drop off junk. And I would just say to you, if that's you, if, the, if you don't want it, the Lord probably doesn't want it either. If in that bad a shape, just keep it or throw it away. When David was in that threshing floor there in Arana, where he, he, he wanted the Lord to stop the plague that had come because he had numbered the people. And, and the, the owner of the field says, I'll just give it to you. Just do whatever it takes that the Lord stop. David said, I can't give to God that which costs me nothing. And so Abram brought a, a lamb as a sacrifice. It was the firstborn lamb. And the character of his offering was that he brought it by faith. Realized that this animal wouldn't really do anything, except God had obviously communicated to him what he wanted. And the faith is we do what God says. That's what faith does. So we are told in verse 5, Cain was very angry, and his, his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you will not do well, sin will lie at your door, and its desire is for you but you should rule over it. Now look at Cain, moping, angry, stomping around. God's response to appealing to him is a reasonable response to his frustration. Look, pal, I'm not rejecting you. You're rejecting me. Come to me on my terms and I will gladly accept you as I accept your brother Abel. Just come in the way that you've been told. If you do well, will you not be accepted? That's so reasonable. If you do not do well, look, you should know that sin crouches at your door desiring to rule over you, but you have to rule over it. Sin is out to get you. It is a few words that define the battle. When we set aside the ways of the Lord, we are constantly going to be in a fight with sin that waits for us and longs to dominate our lives and to take us out. When Jesus spoke to Peter there at the Last Supper, he said to him, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail, and when you're converted, go and strengthen your brothers. But he said sin wants to destroy. That's sin's purpose. That's the devil's purpose. How do you, how do you overcome sin? You submit to God. And then his power takes over, keeps you. Sin crouches at the door. It lies in wait. It wants to take you out. But you must rule over it. How? Well, not counting to ten when you're angry. You find, you find deliverance when you surrender yourself to Christ and begin to walk in his ways, to rely upon his spirit. Victory is found in the shed blood of Jesus and in the hearts of those who turn to him in faith. I can't will or determine victory over sin. Sin will overpower me. But if I come to Jesus, Romans 8.37 says, You are more than conquerors through him that loved you. You are more than conquerors. That's where the word Nike is, by the way. Conquerors. Hooper Nike. More than conquerors. Never knew the shoe store was in the Bible, did you? There it is. <laughs> Thanks be to God, Paul wrote to the Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, who always causes us to triumph and makes manifest the savor of his knowledge through us in every place. Saul, in fighting the Amalekites, was told by the Lord through Samuel to wipe out the Amalekites completely. They were a type of sin. You give it a little space, it's going to take as much as it can get from you. Saul, though, did what Saul thought was best, not to obey the Lord. He, you know, let some of the animals go. He, he captured the king and and thought that he could use him, you know, down the road as far as negotiations were concerned. And so when Samuel came to see how the battle was going, and Samuel was blind, he was an old guy. Saul used spiritual terms to cover his inability and unwillingness to serve the Lord. He said, oh, the Lord has been blessing us, you know. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And uh, Samuel said to him in 1 Samuel chapter 15, sacrifices of far less value than the obedience of a yielded heart. God's just interested in obedience. That's how you find his strength. So 
Abel came as God demanded. Cain came as Cain wanted. Cain believed in God, but Cain didn't believe God. He recognized and acknowledged him, but he wouldn't obey him. He expected God to be impressed and satisfied with the effort of his physical labors, only to find out God was not at all. And he defined for him what the problem was, sin, crouching at his door, looking to take him out. By faith, I obey his directions. I come to Jesus and to no one else. He's the one I go to. False religion always has a different name. Right? You go to Mary Baker Eddy. You go to Joseph Smith. You go to Buddha. You go to, to Bahamut. You go to Cain. You're wrong. You go to Jesus. He's the only one and the only name. God, God never separates the worship that you bring him from the condition of the worshiper. He always looks at the heart. You can raise your hand, but he's going to look beyond your hands to your heart. You can have tears in your eyes. He's going to look for a broken heart. Cain, in anger, chose his true colors, chose his heart. There's merger, murder, I should say, brewing here. That's coming next. It was Jesus in Matthew who said to the scribes and the Pharisees, you are hypocrites, and Isaiah the prophet wrote of you that you draw near to me with your mouth, but you're, and you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And now you're, you know, you're teaching worship in the sense of the doctrines and commandments of men, and you're thinking somehow you can replace that with what I've asked for you. And, and he wouldn't accept it. Remember that, that, that parable in Luke 18 where Jesus started by saying, and he spoke a parable to them, of, uh, to certain those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they despised others. And then he said there was too many went up to pray, uh, the Pharisee and the publican. And the Pharisee, the Lord said of his prayer, he prayed with himself. The Lord wasn't listening. Thank you, Father, that I'm not like these sinners around here. I'm better and holier. And the Lord goes, I have no idea what he's saying. The prayer never left the temple. The guy got up and fell right back down. God never heard him. Sin does look to take you out. For some of of us, it is no longer at the door, but it has crossed the threshold and made its home in your heart and you've given it its own room. <laughs> I'm very impressed by the fact that the Lord here in writing isn't writing Cain off. He approaches him with reason. He seeks to have him admit his issues, get a grip, man, or sin is going to get a grip upon you. Unfortunately, he doesn't listen. So we read in verse 8, after this encounter with the Lord, that Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is your, uh, Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. I'm not, am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth because you have opened its mouth, it has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You'll be a fugitive and a vagabond upon the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I'll be a fugitive and a vagabond upon the earth. And it shall happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Here's the result of Cain's religion. Four words. Force, falsehood, futility, and fear. Force. Boiling with rage, Cain goes to talk to his brother. I wonder what he said to him. I don't know. From listening to the modern-day Keynes, we might have heard how humiliating he spoke to his brother. I don't know if you've ever been told as a Christian that your faith is cheap and foolish, that you're just fools, you know, God doesn't work that way. He maybe pointed to the filthy, bloody, offensive altar and, and said, did you see how beautiful my herbs were and fruit? This murder was first-degree murder, not second. This was well planned out. It's a prototype of all that will follow as violence has filled 
the heart of the human race in a big way. He kills his brother. Though God accepted Abel's offering, I want you to notice this, God did not prevent Cain from killing him. Just in case you thought being a Christian is an easy life. Those who look to the world for rewards for faithfulness are oftentimes disappointed. But here's Cain. He's the father of false religion. He's characterized false religion with force and persecution on those who would stand for the Lord in his ways. You can see that, I think, in the world today with the opposition that you and I are receiving from the world as Christians. If you just go through the history of the world, look at how often the deaths that came to, to nations and peoples had to do with religion. It is almost meaner than anything else. Certainly meaner than, than anger and, and selfishness. That religious kind of intolerance is amazing. Every drop of blood shed in the name of religion ever should verify that false religion is, is the way of Cain. It's false. And then it's a lie. Look what the Lord said to Cain. It wasn't that God didn't know what happened to his brother. But Cain is, is, is given a lie. God didn't ask because he didn't know. He asked to help him. His answer was, I don't know. Hardened and aloof, am I my brother's keeper? Well, he's your brother. There weren't too many of you. Man has a difficult time, man, when sin enters the picture, to say these three words, I am sorry, or I am wrong, or I have sinned. You saw it back in the garden, the blame game, the woman that you gave me, the serpent. <laughs> I hear parents blame their kids for their tempers and their spouses for their lack of spiritual commitment. Falsehood is a cornerstone of man's religion. It's a lie. And you find it immediately in the man who established false ways. It is forceful. It is false. It is futile. Notice verse 10, 11, and 12 here, that God strips away the falsehood and, and he exposes Cain and his religion for what it is. True faith would make Abraham a pilgrim in the, in the world, a stranger. Sin would make Cain a fugitive and a vagabond. He was a lost cursed man who really couldn't find any peace now upon the earth. Satisfaction would evade him. Energy would dissipate from his life. His life, would, his life is spoiled. The things he trusted in, believed in, his own works would let him down. All of his fake religious behavior is, is absolutely of no benefit to Cain. And this is written in the book of Genesis so that there might be an establishment of the way things go. It's the prototype. It's the, it's the, you know, the, the picture that you then put over every generation and every, and every people. And then he ends up in fear. Notice there's still no repentance here. There's no remorse for sin. There's just a resentment that his decisions have caused them such suffering. And so he fears the avenging hand of man, not the judgment of God. His religion left him without peace, unsure of himself, God would not allow the sinner to be at peace in his rebellion. So Cain walks from God's presence as a fugitive and as a vagabond, sinks into a nameless grave at an unrecorded age, which is almost unheard of, at least in the, the early part of the Old Testament, where God was very clear that we, we know the people and what they did and where they came from and where they were going. But, but he's one of those, you know, raging waves of the sea forming out, foaming out their shame for whom the darkness forever is, is reserved, as Jude would, would write to us. Cain left behind followers who, who would develop, and we'll look at it here in a minute, a thriving civilization, great accomplishments, as the founders of many religious, false religions have done. His, his descendants, the descendants of Cain, will bring forth great social, secular, scientific developments, but it's all temporary. By the time the flood comes, it's all washed away. It doesn't last, but it looks good for a little while. So beginning in verse 16, we have the, the description of the, of the ways or the family of Cain. Verse 16 uh, tells us that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. He dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden, 
He knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. He built a city called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. The, the following verses, like I said, tell us much about the development of the families of Cain. It is a, a, a picture, I think, of the world ripening quickly for judgment. 1656 years biblically lie between the flood, or the fall and the flood, centuries. And we're told very little of what those 1656 years hold. In fact, the Bible compresses that time into five and a half chapters and 140 verses. That's all you get for almost 1,700 years of life. Jesus himself commented on this period in Matthews when he said, as it was in the days of Noah, so also shall it be in the, the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So we should pay attention, particularly chapter 4, 5, and 6, as we head towards the flood in chapter 7, because as it was in the days of Noah, so we can expect to see it in our generation as we wait for Jesus to come for us. Two ancestral lines are set before us, and I want you to, to at least grab hold of that tonight. The one is the line of Cain. It is listed first. It is the line of the ungodly. And then we have a godly line of the line of Seth that starts in, at the end of chapter 4. The writer... We, we think Moses pauses in the seventh from Adam in both lines to have a stop in seven generations and look around and see how things were developing. He pauses in this ungodly line with a fellow named Lamech uh, to show us how the tares are ripening. The tares, the, you know, in, in Seth's line, he'll stop with Enoch to show us how the wheat is doing. But there's ungodliness and unworldliness on the one side, and then there's godliness and a seeking of the Lord on the other. So, verse 16 and 17, the, the line of Cain, the in, independent thinker, the self-made man, the stubborn, rebellious, restless murderer whose religion rejected God's ways and has a line of descendants that are indifferent to God's person. Notice in verse 16, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, dwelt in Nod in the east of Eden, turned his back on the gates of Eden, where God had dwelt, and headed for Nod. The word Nod means wandering. And as far as we know, he went out and never returned. I read this and I laughed to myself when I thought, you know, sometimes when I'm teaching, some of you are still in the land of Nod, ding off. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true, but I thought it was funny when I saw it. He showed his indifference to God's paradise. He built a city. He named it after his son Enoch. Enoch means inaugurated or dedicated. It's not the same Enoch, by the way, when you get to chapter 5. Okay? Some, there's, some, there's two Lamechs, too. They're, they're different people. So be careful. The, the time, I think, difference will, will help you with that. But he went to start a new life, an artificial paradise, with God far removed from him. If they could not have a garden... Well, then he'll get a city. He was told to go and wander. He decided he wasn't wandering at all. He's going to plant himself and stay in the land of wandering. But he made it his temporary or, or his permanent residence. He thought this would be a place of enjoyment and ingenuity and, and industry. But it was all by the will of man. Like I said, by the time the flood comes, it's all destroyed. Verse 17 we, we read about Cain's wife. Some, sometimes people, especially when I was doing the radio for a while with pa pastor's perspective, people would call and go, where did Cain get his wife? All right. Not Tinder. <laughs> it's always a question. Chapter 5, verse 4, tells us that Adam and Eve had children for 800 years following the birth of Saul, uh, Seth. 800 years. That could be a lot of kids. No doubt Cain married one of his sisters. Now understand that as this begins, there is really no problem or genetic danger zone, not yet really polluted, if you will. It's kind of like drinking water from the headwaters of the Jordan in Israel as it comes down uh, the snow out of Mount Hermon. Tastes pretty clean, but if you go, you know, 120 miles downriver where the, <laughs> all of the pollution of all the cities have passed through, 
and then stick your head in the water might not be such a good idea. And so it, it is kind of that way genetically as well. We read in verse 18, to Enoch was born these folks, and I'm not going to even try, who ended up with, with uh, Lamech. Lamech for, uh, took for himself two wives. One had, was named as Adah. The other was named Zillah. And then Zillah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and had livestock. And then his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and the flute. And then as for Zillah, she also had bore a kid named Tubal Cain, an instructor, a uh, craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of, of him was Naamah. Um, this new age, uh, seventh generation, Lamech and his family. It goes seven generations. God gives us. His name means powerful. It also sometimes is translated wild man. He had three sons, at least the ones we're told about. Notice in verse 19 that it was a time of tremendous, more uh, miraculous kind of discoveries. His son Jabal, Jabal means a producer, uh, became the father of those who Bedouins traveled and, and raised cattle, honing the ability to market and sales. It was a, they were a business family. His brother Jubal was, was a, the Jubal means to make a joyful noise. He brought music to entertain, to give rhythm, you know, to fill the void in a heart that God alone, I think, could fill. And then this third son, Jubal-Cain, or means brought or, or came from Cain, was a metallurgy revolutionary guy in the ancient world. Smelting was already practiced in those days. So their sister's name was Loveliness. So three brothers dominated the, the line of Cain through, through those seven generations. There was Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal. Um, all of them means, uh, are words to, to produce, right? This, in other words, this line of Cain was, was big on discovery and in innovation and expansion. Men who lived apart from God, who sought power and pleasure and prosperity, and they did well. We, we read of this fellow Lamech, the seventh generation, verse 23, that he said to his wives, Ada and, uh, and Zillah, hear my voices, wives of Lamech, Listen to my speech. I, I've killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech will be avenged really seventyfold uh, times seven. Uh, moral problem here, Lamech, seventh generation, defies the wisdom of God who just created marriage. One man, one woman. Don't believe your newspapers. It's one man, one woman. But here's a guy who's already in introducing the line of Cain, a new morality that, that he now takes two wives. He's the first bigamist in the Bible. His first wife meant ornamental. His second wife means seductress. It's the old lust of the eye and the, and the lust of the flesh. And this is what controlled the, 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 the lives of Cain, if you will. Notice in verse 23 and verse 24 that Lamech's song it's the first song, by the way, in the Bible. It's a song about a sword that glorifies human independence and power and vengeance. The father of the inventor of metallurgy arrogantly threatens anyone that would hurt him, promising vengeance far greater than what God promised to anyone who would seek Cain's life. So here, here's the picture God leaves us with. Here's, here's a group that a man has everything, He's increased with goods. He's organized. He's urbanized. The economy is under his control. The refinements are carried about by man's wisdom. He is powerful. He, is, he has weapons. He has no need for God. Uh, things have not changed much in the many years that we have come to our years. But this is the line of Cain, and that line of Cain will now disappear from the pages of your Bible. Because God's not interested in you running down that genealogy. It ends there. Life stops with a life of Cain if God's not involved. And he changes the, the narrative and he turns the direction around to now the new seed that is replacing the righteous Abel as this would be the line that would replenish the earth after the flood. So we read in verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom 
Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him was a son was born, his name was Enosh. And men began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the righteous path, if you will. The narrative picks up with a new seed. I, I can't imagine what Adam and Eve must have gone through. You know, they had lost two sons, one to murder, the other to banishment. And now they have another son, and they have great hopes for him. Through Seth would come Jesus, a line of faith, those who would trust the Lord. And notice what it says at the end of verse 26. It is now a, a line of people that, as they head for Jesus in a genealogical way, these are folks that begin to call upon the Lord. Literally, the words read, to call him by name. The name here would be Yahweh, the becoming one, or the I am. Chapter 5, verse 1. And we're going to make it, aren't we? Yes, we are. This is the, the book of the generation of Adam. And the day that God created man, he made him in the image, uh, likeness of God. He created them male and female. Underline that. And he blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam, Adam lived for 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his own image and named him Seth. And after he begat Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years. They had sons and daughters. So all the days of Adam lived were 930 years. And there's that off and, and he died. And he died. The new book contains the names. Not all of Adam's sons are here, but some of them are found in this godly line. According to uh, what is often done in the Old Testament, um, God chooses those he wants to include and, and reveal to you. For example, uh, David was the fifth son of Jesse, not the first. But you will often read in abbreviated genealogies, and uh, Jesse begot David because that's all God's interested in. Where does the line go? Remember when we started, I said to you, there's only two things that the Bible's concerned with, the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's all you need to know, right? The Old Testament gets you to the cross. The New Testament gets you to the recoming of the Lord again, which is God's desire. So, so needless to say, the intention of the Lord is to draw a continuous line of descendants from the first Adam through Noah, through Abraham, through David, to the second Adam, Jesus. As the four, four, uh, seven generations of Cain stop, and Seth now continues, we learn that there are only two possible branches. So the, the promise God made to Eve of bringing a deliverer to her uh, will be found in this line. Now, Jeff, if you can put, can you put up this uh, slide? I had a slide, it's really small, it's okay, don't worry. This is the lineages that the Bible gives us from Adam to Jesus. Confusing, right? I brought this back from Israel like 20 years ago, and, and we brought them to the bookstore. When we go to Israel this time, I'll see if we can find them again. They're the coolest things while you're studying, but I, we have this blown up at the bottom here, and Jeff, do that next slide. This is the line of Seth that continues, and then notice the line of um, Cain that stops. Seth will continue. This Cain line has stopped. God doesn't care about this. This is sin. This is the ways of man. This is impossible. There's no life here. So you gotta, we're traveling, if you will, with the, the, what the Lord is wanting us to show. I know sometimes you read genealogies and you go, oh, that's boring. Well, it's boring unless you know, you're involved. If there's stock prices and you have a stock, it's not boring anymore. It's, it's, it's exciting or it's not. Lately not. Um, God recorded these calling on his name. But like I said, this, and you can turn this off, I guess, but this is, this genealogy of Cain no longer is recorded. Notice in verse 2 that the Lord calls um, them mankind. Adam, not Adam family, <laughs> but Adam. And verse 3, 4, 5, Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. By the way, he could have had 50 kids by then. We don't know. Cain could have been born to him in his late 100 teens. At 930 years old, Adam dies. If you review this list, and I just want you to think about this. I know sometimes there's a lot of numbers and they overwhelm you. Um, Adam would still be alive when Lamech, not the one we just read about, but Lamech, the father of Noah, is born. So between Adam and Noah's father, there was able to communicate over all of those pants span of years, if you will. Um, Adam died shortly before Noah's birth. 
Noah could have received all of the first-hand information through his father. Going a little further forward, uh, down in verse 32 of this chapter, Noah was 500 years old when he begat his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, Shem was the youngest. When Shem was born, his dad was 500 years old, which meant he would have still been alive at the time of Abraham. So you literally have one, two, three, from Adam to Abraham. I know it just seems like, you know, you're spinning you know, wheels sometimes, but this close testimony would have meant that the, the history could have easily been passed on through just one big generation, if you will. So Adam lived to see the wicked line of Cain develop, but also to see the preservation of the line through Seth. Well, beginning in verse 6, and we're not going to read the, the verses. I'm going to help you. <laughs> Down through verse 32. From Seth, this godly son of Adam and Eve, to Noah, we are given five patriarchs named, and then Enoch followed by three early prophets. And we only know they're prophets because we see them later. In, in verse uh, 4 of chapter uh, 5, uh, here, Seth. Seth means compensation, interesting, or appointments. He was the one who was going to take Abel's place. He would die at 912 years old. Then there is Enoch, Enos in verse 9, Kynan in verse 12, Mahaliel in verse 15, Jared in verse 18, and then down in verse 21, you can skip there. Enoch lived 65 years, beget, and, and he was the father of Methuselah, and after he had Methuselah, Enoch walked with God for 300 years and his sons and daughters. So all of the years or days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not for God. Took him. Enoch begins a line of prophets in those days. And, and here's the interesting thing I wanted to point out to you. Um, he was 65 years old, Enoch, when he had Methuselah. And according to verse 24, Enoch walked with God and was not. After Methuselah was born, Enoch's life changed. He began to walk with God. The birth of his son changed his life. For the next 300 years, Enoch walked with God, had children, lived for the Lord. And one day, the Lord just took him from the earth. And he was no longer. He was with the Lord. He didn't die couple of lessons. Number one, you know who Methuselah is, right? Lived longer than anyone in the Bible, 969 years. The only accomplishment written of a guy that lived that long was that the day he was born, his dad got right with God. I point that out to you because sometimes when I do little funerals for little babies that have died or, or little children and people wonder, gosh, they didn't get to live their full life and their life didn't have purpose. Here's a guy that lived 969 years, did nothing except the day he was born. So a short life is not necessarily an incomplete life. Secondly, Enoch, who is also mentioned in Hebrews 11 and in the little book of Jude in verses 14 and 15, became a prophet that began to prophesy in these days that the Lord was coming. He becomes a picture of the rapture of the church. God taking out of the way his own before the judgment, the flood would come. In fact, the name Methuselah means when he dies, it will come. Very prophetic. And in the year of the flood, Methuselah was no more. His long life showing God waits patiently for everyone to come around. So Enoch breaks the chain of, and he died. By the way, there's only two people in the Bible that, that say, that the Lord says of them, that they walked with God. You know who the other one is? Who? Hmm. Verse 9, Noah. <laughs> you can't just cheat. Read ahead. It's the way to go. <laughs> so God took him, verse 24, and God will take us before the great tribulation. His judgment will fall upon men who have rejected him. Then we get down to verse 28. And Lamech lived 182 years. Not the same Lamech as we just read about back there in verse 23 of the last chapter, completely years before. He lives 182 years, and he has a son, and he called his name Noah. 
saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And he had Noah as a son, and Lamech lived 595 years, and he had more sons and daughters. All the days of Lamech were 777 years. He died, and Noah was 500 years old when he had these three kids. Noah, the preacher of righteousness, if, if, if the... Uh, he's the first one in the line of Seth, at least in the genealogy that we are given, where all of his kids are named, and it's important because when we get to chapter 10 and 11, I hope you won't miss that week, we are given an insight into how all of the nations of the, of the world were born, how they got there, where did they came from, how did they develop, and I think it's very interesting because I just finished chapter 11 today, actually. Um, it is the most perfect example of God's word never failing. It was written after the flood. It's absolutely still today true. It doesn't need to be changed one word. God is wise, and we should know it. But anyway, this, this first in the line of Seth, he builds an ark to save his house. He uh, will continue this godly seed through which Jesus will one time come. Noah will spend 120 years building an ark. 120 years God's waits for man. Those who refuse to hear will die in the flood. So there's seven generations through Cain, and then the godly line through Seth appointed to replace Abel. You go seven generations and you end up at Noah. 1,500 years or so have passed between the fall and now another 120 or so will be before the flood. Those 120 years are the subject of chapter 6, 7, and 8, which we're not even going to try to do tonight. Father, how thankful we are tonight as you've set before us the history of man, of the development of man. We, we were fascinated to see this, this line of, of Cain, his, his unwillingness to walk with you. He had certainly the same opportunity his brother did. He met a God who was patient and kind and, and calling him to repentance. He was, he was faithful to show him the way that he should go, and he refused. We watched this, this ungodly nine de develop and bring forth in the world much fruit, great accomplishments. Certainly, they were pioneers and founders in their days, but they died. And their work was left behind and ultimately fell into the judgment of God. And then there's this young man, Seth. And seven generations later, there stands this preacher of righteousness, Noah. And God, though you set aside this, this line of Cain to tell us that's a that, that line won't continue. There's no life on that path. You set behind before us a, a path that we can follow, a genealogy that, that proves to us the faithfulness of God and, and his faithfulness to man. And that's certainly what we don't want to forget, that, Lord, you, you set before us all that we can learn so that we'll come to the right conclusion about you and who you are and what we need to do. And even tonight, that we'll go the way of Abel, the way of Seth. We'll believe what you say. We'll obey what you tell us. We won't defy you. We'll surrender to a God who loves us so, knows what's best, has our best interest in mind. Thoughts to us are good, not evil. Give us a, a hope, confidence. Tonight, if, if you are in rebellion against the Lord, know that it is a line that you don't want to follow. Your heritage and your, your descendancy, you go back and look. That's not the way to go. There's no life there, but all the earmarks of a false religious system. Your best bet is to do what we read of the days of Seth, where men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. In that day, call him by name. Start to know who he is. And God tonight will restore you and wash you and make you clean. He's a God of new beginnings. And he's able to give you life. We're going to have communion here just in a, in a moment. It's where we always are, are drawn back to. No matter how long you've been saved, you're, you're forced by, with communion to go back to where you started. Where you came to the Lord empty-handed and realized... You needed him. He didn't need you. He wanted you. But you need him. And he will give you life if you will look to him and believe in him and trust him. 
And if you haven't done that or you've been away, just ask the Lord today to restore you. If you're watching online as well, God, here's your prayer. He's near you, even in your mouth, the Bible says. He's willing, he's willing to give you life today. Just call upon him. Well, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our podcast. You can visit us on the web at morningstarcc.org and on our YouTube channel at MorningstarCC. Again, that's at MorningstarCC. If you'd like to support this podcast, please look us up at patreon.com slash MorningstarCC. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash MorningstarCC.